we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. For the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we will consider why Christ came. And the answer provided for us this morning is to bring light into darkness. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as a joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the glorious word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great passage of Scripture that told Israel of old that a day was coming when a light would shine in the darkness and this light would transform everything. Father, we thank You that on this side of the first advent of Christ, we can see very clearly what the light has accomplished. Thank You for the light that shines in our hearts. And Father, may we see what You are doing in the world today. May we see that the light of Christ is becoming brighter and brighter. Send Your Spirit to bring illumination to our hearts this morning. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. May be seated. I'd like to begin this morning, in the beginning, the very beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In these verses we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Uh, Looking at this passage, it seems that the very first obstacle, if you will, that God overcame was that of darkness. The very first pronouncement in the creation order was that of light. 
Now, here's a question I have for you, children. What was this light? Was this the light of the sun, the light of the moon, the light of the stars? No. Does anybody know on what day of creation they were created? Day, Parker? Day four. So this is not the light of the sun, moon, or stars. This is the light of what then? God. This is the light of God. This is the glory of Jesus Christ shining into the darkness. And you say, where do you get that? And I say, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And see if the beginning of John's Gospel doesn't sound familiar. John 1, 1. In the beginning... Sound familiar? John is intentionally paralleling the beginning of his Gospel with the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is John's way of saying God created the heavens and the earth, only He's reminding us that the Word was right there with God and the Word was God. And He continues on, And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here's John saying, in the beginning, once again, the sun was there. He created all things, and His light was shining into the darkness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So we have the original creation with the light of Jesus Christ shining into darkness, and now we have the new creation, if you will. And once again, we have the light of Jesus Christ shining into darkness. Now, I want you to see that light and darkness are much more than physical descriptions or markers of days and nights. They are loaded with symbolism and meaning. Let me ask you some other questions. Since this is the Advent season... Let me ask children, what time of day was Jesus born? And I'll give you three options. Morning, noon, or night? Morning, noon, or night? Someone got it right. Say it louder, please. Night. Night. Very good. I didn't have prep them. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus was born at night. Look at Luke 2. Beginning at verse 8, if you turn back, it's right before the Gospel of John. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the flock, keeping watch over their flocks. And Luke is very clear, very clear to tell us, by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Remember, this is nighttime. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So they're out in the fields. It's nighttime. It's dark. An angel comes and the glory of the Lord, not the glory of the angel, but the glory of the Lord shone around them so that it brightens up the sky. 
And they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is God's birth announcement, if you will. God wanted these shepherds to know that His Son had been born. And He was born at night. And even though it was night, God sent light into this darkness. Another question. What time of day was Jesus crucified? And again, I'll give you three options. Morning, noon, or night. Maybe I'll make it more difficult and I'll call on the adults. Does anybody remember what time of day Jesus was crucified? Noon. Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 44. Now, it was about the sixth hour, which in our vernacular we would say noon. It was about the sixth hour, noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And then Luke adds, while the sun's light failed. So John makes it very clear, Jesus is crucified at noon, and from about noon to three, the sky goes dark. Now, why did that happen? Because judgment for sin was coming upon Christ. Darkness represents sin. It represents judgment. One other question. What time of day did Jesus rise from the dead? Morning, noon, or night? You better get this one. In the morning. That's right. First thing in the morning. Because the morning represents newness of life. Darkness is over. Death is over. And Jesus is rising to new life. It's a sign that He is giving us new life. So I want you to see right up front that light and darkness are loaded with symbolism and meaning. Light represents glory. It represents life. It even represents God Himself. God is light who has no shadow whatsoever of turning. And darkness, of course, represents sin, judgment, and death. Now again, I begin with these references to light and darkness so that we can appreciate the rich symbolism they contain, so that we can read the Bible for all it's worth, including the book of Isaiah that we can turn to. Because the book of Isaiah, for the most part, is a dark book of judgment. Judgments upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Judgments upon the southern kingdom of Judah. Judgments upon different nations. But interspersed throughout this dark book of judgment, we have passages of bright light shining forth. And Isaiah 9, 1-7 is one such passage. Let's look at Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So the prophet talks about contempt that came upon this land. And what he's talking about was the judgment that came upon the northern tribe of Israel. God brought the Assyrian army 
against northern Israel to bring judgment upon Israel because they had turned away from God. Let me give you a little context. Back up to Isaiah 8.19. And when they say to you, this is the Lord speaking to Isaiah, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teachings and to the testimony. In other words, turn to God's Word for instruction. If they will not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward. So when destruction comes upon them, they're going to be mad at the king because the king's not protecting them. They're going to be mad at God. How could God allow this to happen to them? And they will look to the earth. So they'll look up. They'll look down. But the earth has nothing to offer. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So God judges the people for turning away from Him, not turning to His Word for counsel, not praying to Him for direction. So God brings the Assyrian army against the Israelites, and now they're in gloom, doom, and all they experience is darkness, and indeed it's a thick darkness. But, here's the contrast, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So notice very clearly that earlier, he held this land in contempt. And here's how it's described in 2 Kings 15.29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, the king of Assyria came and captured, and then we have listed different areas, including Galilee and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So this is very important. So when the king of Assyria comes, he takes the people captive And we're told specifically where he came. He came in the land of Zebulun. He came to the land of Naphtali, Galilee by the sea. The very area described right here in Isaiah. And then Isaiah says, but in the later time, and of course hindsight is 2020 so that we know the later time refers to some 700 years later, We know that in the later time, this exact geographical location will have light shine on them. Let's continue on. But in the later time, he brought, or excuse me, in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness On them, a light has shined. Notice, darkness, light. Darkness, light. Now, what is this light that shines in the darkness? 
Turn to Matthew 4. We don't have to guess. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. Now when he, referring to Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. There's our location that we're talking about. Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? That's our exact location. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I think this is awesome. The exact location where God brought armies against the Israelites and brought them into judgment and brought darkness. That same exact location some 700 years later, Jesus walked with His physical feet as the light in that region so that He would bring light to that darkness. But also, notice the symbolism. There's a little change in Isaiah in Matthew. We have darkness, light in verse 16, and then we have death and light. So again, that's a reminder that darkness represents death. Spiritual death. Which tells us that Jesus is bringing light. He is bringing life. He is bringing eternal life. Verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, saying, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's very important. We're going to talk about that in a minute as well. Jesus says, repent. Because the kingdom is at hand. It's right in front of you. Because the king of the kingdom is here. And if they will repent, they will experience light. They will experience life. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. So in a place of darkness, God brings light. In a place of death, He brings life. And in a place of judgment, He brings salvation. Now, what will the dawning of this light accomplish? Turning back to Isaiah 9, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. The light does two things. It multiplies the nation and it increases the joy of the people. Now, the multiplication of this nation is a reference to the new Israel, the church. 1 Peter 2.19 says that the church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And Jesus Christ, He is building a new people. He is building a new nation. And this is the nation that is going to be multiplied. And it's great because God is reversing what happened to the nation. The nation was judged. They were taken captive. They were dispersed. They were scattered. Now God is bringing light and He is building the nation. He is multiplying the nation. And the result of that is that the increase of the joy of the people rises. The people are excited. They are filled with joy. And notice carefully, they rejoice before you. This is joy before the face of God. Now, Isaiah wants us to understand just how great this joy is. 
he wants to make it very clear. They really are happy. Now, for Isaiah to communicate that, he's going to use a couple of similes. Kids, you know what a simile is? Have you learned that in English class? What, what's a simile? Nick, your butt. Yes. Word that's similar to another word. And the key phrase is that, what's that? Different meanings. Yes, Jory? Ah, thank you. Using like or as. That's right. Those are the keys. So when you hear that, it's like this or it's as this. You have simile. Otherwise, we usually just say it's a metaphor. Now, I raise this because kids these days are into similes. Have you noticed that? Because when I talk to kids, they're always saying, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like. And they say it all the time. Like, wow, kids these days are really into similes. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, the prophet Isaiah is into similes. And he gives us two right here. Uh, they rejoice before you as, or maybe would like the word like, same thing. Uh, they will rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. Now, you need to understand that Israel was an agrarian culture. So when they planted their crops in the Bat 40, it wasn't because gardening was a nice little hobby. Something they liked to do on the side to relax a little bit. This was their life. And if there wasn't a harvest at the end of the season, they were in trouble. In fact, they may die. So when God blessed them with the early rains and the later rains and there was a rich harvest, they were happy. This was a happy time in Israel when a harvest came in. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 4-7. The psalmist says, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. See what the psalmist says? I am so happy. And he's saying, how can I express how happy? I'm more happy than when their grain and new wine abound. Again, at the end of the season, when the harvest comes in and the wine comes in, and they're having a great party and a great celebration for how God's provided for them. Isaiah is saying, that's the kind of joy that it's going to be. And he says, let me give you another simile. I want you to see how happy these people are. So there's another simile here. As they are happy or uh, glad as... They are glad when they divide the spoil. Anybody know what that's a reference to? When do you divide the spoil? After war. That's right. This is a picture of an army going in, uh, conquering the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Midianites, Mosquito Bites, all those ites. <laughs> Try to sneak that in there. They go in, they conquer all these cities or all these nations. And then they divide the spoils among themselves. And they say, here's a sack of gold for you. And why don't you fill up your cart with silver? And, and here's some richly ornamented robes for you. And they just they divide the, splun- the, the spoils. They enjoy the plunder. And they're just they're excited. I think a comparison for us would be winning the lottery. Hopefully you don't play the lottery. But if you did play the lottery and you won, it's that kind of joy. They hit the jackpot. They are happy. And Isaiah says, that's what it's going to be like when the light shines and the nation increases. They're going to be overflowing with joy. They are going to be so happy. Now, what is going to make all this possible? 
Isaiah tells us. And he gives us three reasons for the multiplication of this nation and the increase of its joy. And we see those three reasons in verse 4. And then in verse 5, we're given the second reason. And then the third reason is given in verses 6 and 7. And you'll see that each one of those verses begins with the word for. We might just say, because, giving us the reason. So, the nation's going to be multiplied. It's going to have great joy. Verse 4, by putting an end to oppression. By putting an end to oppression. And remember, if you are held captive by another nation, that is a tremendous blessing. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, talking about their enemies, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. So one of the things that the nation would do to the people that they captured is that they would make them uh, do forced labor. Uh, We see that in the book of Judges when the Israelites go into these different lands. If they did not destroy the people, sometimes they didn't even though they were supposed to, they would force them to experience harsh labor. That's what you do to captives. You make them do the dirty jobs that you don't want to do. You make them your servants. You make them really your slaves. And the nation's going to be increased. They're going to be so happy because God's going to set them free from this oppression. And then we have another simile. As on the day of Midian. This is a reference to Gideon. Gideon put together an army to go against the Midianites. And Gideon, if you'll recall, had 32,000 men. Pretty good-sized army. God said, uh, too large of an army. He said, you need to trim down your truth because if you go in with this big army, you're going to think you did it all by yourself and you're going to praise yourself and you're not going to glorify me. So he says, you need to trim it down. Those that are afraid, let them go home and the rest can stay. 22,000 men go home. Tells you about how scary war is. Uh, Gideon's thinking, okay, 10,000, that's not quite what I had in mind, but okay, we'll, uh, we'll go with 10,000. God says, nope, still have too many men. And some of you will recall, God tells Gideon, take the men down to the water, have them drink. Uh, some of them uh, drank the water like a dog. Others went down and they lapped the water up with their hands. 300 did that. They lapped it up with their hands. And God said, the 300 men who lapped up the water with their hands, that's your army. The rest of the men, they can go home. Gideon said, this is wonderful. (laughs) Uh, I'm reading between the lines a little bit. This is implied in the Hebrew. (laughs) Uh, Lord, are you sure? God was sure. And with only 300 men, Gideon went in and he conquered the Midianites making it very clear that God brought about this great victory because 300 men went in with trumpets. They went in with torches that were covered by bowls. And all they did was blow the trumpets, uh, break the, the pottery, raise their torches, and the army turned on each other. God took care of the whole thing. God brought about the victory. And the reminder here is that God Himself is going to bring about the victory. God will set you free from the oppression. And how will God do that? Verse 5 God will do that by putting an end to war. And this deliverance will be final. 
For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, God is going to put an end to war. These weapons of the war will be used for fuel. They will no longer be needed for battle. And we need to understand that this is the ultimate deliverance that God has in mind. This is spiritual deliverance. Really, what He's telling Israel, I'm going to bring about a deliverance in your lives that is immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. You you want deliverance from these enemies right over here. I'm going to bring about deliverance from the ultimate enemy, Satan and sin, so that you can experience life in all its fullness. Now, how is God going to bring about an end to oppression and war? The answer is given in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God is going to bring about an end to oppression and war because He's going to give them a child. But of course, not only is He going to give them a child, we're told that this child is also a son. This child is the Son of God. And don't overlook the fact that twice in the passage it says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And I hope right now in the back of your mind you have Handel's Messiah playing for you. And I think as Handel put this together, I think he purposely put it together and said, for unto us, and then there's a pause so that we would think about that. For unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He pauses so that we would understand this is for us, the people of God, that this is being done. He is giving us His very own Son. And God's going to put an end to oppression. He's going to put an end to war because this Son of His that He's going to give to us is going to be the King. And you say, I don't see King in the passage. I don't either. But this is what I do see in the passage. I see the word government. And I see that twice. I see the word throne. I see the word kingdom. So obviously, this child is going to grow up to be the king of Israel. Now, why doesn't Isaiah describe him as the king? Or rather, call him as the king? I think Isaiah wants us to know that he's not just a king like the other kings that have gone before this king. This king is the final king. This king is is the king to end all kings. This king is the king of kings. So instead of just describing him as the king, he says, his name shall be called. And again, think of Handel's Messiah. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is no ordinary human king. You'll recall that on one occasion, Jesus asked the religious leaders, whose son is the Messiah? And they thought, oh, that's easy. 
the son of David. And Jesus said, if it's the son of David, then why does David say in Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. If it's David's son, how does David call him Lord? And they had no answer. And Jesus was clearly trying to help them to see that not only is the Messiah the son of David, but he is also at the same time the son of God. And in this passage as well, we have the humanity of Christ and we have the deity of Christ. Let me point out the two obvious ones. Mighty God. This child is called the Mighty God. And He's an everlasting Father or a Father of eternity. Not to be confused with the Heavenly Father, but meaning He is the Lord of eternity. How, how can a human being be called God? How can a human being be Lord of eternity that has no beginning at one side and no end at the other? The only answer is that He is also God. And Jesus could have pointed the Israelites to this passage as well. He could have said, well then explain to me Isaiah 9.6. This child, this son, is also God in the flesh. Now, many things could be said about the names here, but let me just make one observation. He is called a wonderful counselor. And here is one thing I know for sure. Every single one of us in this room needs wisdom. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through, but I know this. You need wisdom. I need wisdom. We need help. And I love the promise of James 1.5. It's my classic verse for counseling. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We have a wonderful counselor. We have a counselor who has the answers to all our dilemmas. He knows the way out or he knows the way through. And we need to keep that in mind. So often we're wringing our hands and we're saying, I don't know what to do. And we're grumbling and we're complaining. And I think God is saying, you have a counselor. Make an appointment. When is he available? Actually, he's available right now. (laughs) Is your schedule open? We have a counselor. He does. I really do mean this. Many of you, you're looking for answers to finances or your marriage or or your children. You're looking for answers. God has the answers. Jesus Christ has the answer. Turn to Him. He will give you the counsel you need. If we are in darkness, let us persist in prayer. And He will shed light on our situation and He will help us to see through. We have a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. Nothing is too hard for Him. Everlasting fire. He is the Prince of Peace. And then verse 7. Another reference to the government. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. So we have this increasing government that's, that's growing. I was talking to a seminary student on one occasion and he said, I was talking to my professor and my professor said that there is nothing in the Bible that talks about a gradual increase of the kingdom of God. And he was saying that because I said, my belief is that Jesus came, 
set up the kingdom, established the kingdom, and now it's just gradually growing and increasing. And he said, my professor says, there is nothing in the Bible to support that. Because the view of this professor was that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he is going to establish the kingdom in an instant, in a moment. So it either has to be one or the other. They can't both be right. If it's gradual, then it doesn't happen all at once. If it happens all at once, it can't be gradual. So which is it? Well, this is what Jesus said, Mark, Mark 4, 26 and following. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grown in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, you judge for yourself. You, you can interpret this passage. Does this sound like a gradual growth of the kingdom or does this sound like something that happens right away? Sounds like a gradual growth to me. And again, if any of you have planted gardens, do you put seed in the ground and then water a little bit and then go to bed at night and say, wow, I can't wait to come out here tomorrow and, and pick my watermelons? It, it takes time. Jesus continues on. And He said, with what can we pair the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Again, this is another depiction of the gradual growth of the kingdom. And God gave us His Son, and He was born, so that the government could rest upon His shoulders, and so that His government could increase, a government with peace that would have no end. And he would sit on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From what time? From the time that he is born. Why was Jesus born? And many answers could be given to that. We could say he was born to die. We often say that at Christmas time. And it's true. But let's also remember that he was born to bring in the kingdom and to be king. Luke 1, 31 and following, Mary is told by the angel Gabriel, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You're going to give birth to the king. He was the king on earth. Remember the Magi came? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they went and they worshipped the king. And the irony is that Gentiles are coming worshipping the Jewish king. They don't recognize that he's the king, but he's the king. He was born king and he brought in his kingdom. And then he died and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, he sat down where? At the right hand of God, the throne of David, where he reigns and rules over his nation, over the world. 
Now, I want to be very clear. As I read this passage, I see no gap between verses 6 and 7. No gap whatsoever. Many do. One commentator said, talking about verses 6 and 7 in the reign of Christ, apparently, Isaiah assumed that the Messianic child, Jesus Christ, would establish His reign in one advent. That when the Christ grew up, He would rule in triumph. Like the other prophets, Isaiah was not aware of the great time gap between Messiah's two advents. You know what this commentator is saying? Isaiah got it wrong. I, I hear this all the time. A few weeks ago, I was at a breakfast with some pastors and we were talking about prophecy. And, and one pastor said, well, the Apostle Paul thought the second coming was going to take place in his lifetime. And, and I said it a little stronger than I probably should have. But, but I said, you, you mean the Apostle Paul was wrong? And, and he, he kind of said, well, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he, he was looking forward to the second coming. He, he was saying the Apostle was wrong. I read this and he's saying, Isaiah was wrong. He had a wrong assumption. An inspired writer of Scripture. I have to be honest with you, that makes me very nervous. And I don't believe it. There is no gap here. There's no gap. Jesus Christ was born the King. He redeemed us. He ascended to heaven. And His kingdom is growing. The problem is that we have a hard time with the kingdom growing. Let me read what John Calvin said about this passage. and This is a little more to my liking. Now this continuance, talking about the kingdom, of which Isaiah now speaks, consists of two parts. It belongs both to time and to quality. Though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it appears as if it were about to perish at every moment, yet God not only protects and defends it, but also extends its boundaries far and wide and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. We ought firmly to believe this that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith when we learn that amidst the mad outcry and violent attacks of enemies, the kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God so that though the whole world should oppose and resist, it will remain through all ages. We must not judge of its stability from the present appearances of things, but from the promise which assures us of its continuance and of its constant increase. John Calvin wrote that almost 500 years ago. If John Calvin were to come back today and to see how the Gospel has gone forth into different nations since his day, you know what he would say to us this morning? He would say, open your eyes. Look around the world. Not just look around the world. The kingdom of God, even since my day, forget the 1,500 years before my day, the kingdom of God since my day has grown and increased. What is the difficulty with this passage right here? Just look around the world. The kingdom of God is growing. It's undeniable. Yes, the church will have highs and lows, but the percentage of those who embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is growing. Yes, I know there's many false confessions of faith, but it is growing. Why is this so hard to fathom? 
other than the fact that we are lacking in faith. The kingdom is growing. Now, do we see the culmination of it yet? No. And I know that's why many people stumble because it says that He is going to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And they say, we need more justice. We need more righteousness. And I say, yes, amen. And be patient. (laughs) Be patient because we're talking about a kingdom that's increasing. Increasing in justice. Increasing in righteousness. And many of the promises about the kingdom describe the culmination of the kingdom. Like Isaiah, if you want to turn ahead just a little bit, 11.6. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats, and the calf and the lion and the fatty calf together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Be patient. This day is coming. But the kingdom is growing in extent, in influence. And this is the kingdom that we enjoy today. Winter is receding. If you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, the white witch who represents Satan, yes, brings in winter so that it's cold. And by the way, so that it's always winter and never what? Never Christmas! But we have Christmas putting an end to the winter. And then as Jesus Christ comes forth, as He is on the move in the person of Aslan, winter recedes and spring comes gradually. And that's what's happening. The light is getting brighter and brighter. Winter is receding. New life is springing forth. The kingdom is expanding. We need to be patient. Jesus Christ is on His throne. Make no mistake about it. Ruling over the world. And all this will be accomplished. And after this great passage, I believe God wants to put His exclamation point right at the end. He said, basically, I want you to know this is going to happen. I'm going to see to it that this is going to happen. That's why the passage ends, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is passionate about bringing this about. God Almighty is zealous with bringing about this transformation to the nation. It is going to happen in the Messiah and God will see to it that it happens. And we are the recipients of this great kingdom. We enjoy this light. And at Christmas, we celebrate this light that has dawned into the darkness and transformed this world forever. Sometimes I think we sing better than we write theology. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. He's transforming this whole world as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, He will undo it. And He will establish His kingdom in its place. Let's pray. 
Father, increase our faith to believe the great promises of Your Word. Open our eyes to see how they are being fulfilled in our very midst. Help us this Christmas season to just revel in all that we have because of Jesus Christ. Father, we are so blessed. Thank You for what You are doing with the Israel of God. Thank You for how it is growing. Thank You that we are a part of it. Thank You for the joy that we experience. Thank You that You are God. Thank You that Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Amen.